Hi everyone, this is Neighboring. Uh, it's a series of interviews where we really try to take a deep dive into this idea of what does it mean to be a good neighbor? It's a very broad question. Uh, one that we find has a lot, of con a lot of different meanings for different contexts. And part of this series is trying to invite people that we know, people that challenge us, people that think differently, and uh, really try to uh, broaden the conversation of where neighboring happens beyond just the neighborhood. And today I'm here with Zach Benedict, uh, partner at MKM Architecture, likely one of my favorite people. And, no pressure. Uh, no pressure at all. And uh, since the first time I met you, probably almost nine, 10 years yeah. ago, uh, I have been captivated by the depth of knowledge that you have on the historical context of what we look at as neighborhoods and some of the structures and systems and choices we've made as a society that have impacted who we are today and who we could be tomorrow and how design and place sure. and all that comes together. So thanks for joining. Hopefully we can take 25 minutes or so here and give a deep dive and allow the rest of the world to uh, be as impacted by your thoughts as is mine. So Let's get started. if we do nothing but ask questions back and forth, uh, I think we'll move this, this conversation This is forward. a success? Okay, yeah. I can do that. So introduce uh, the world to Zach Benedict. Tell us about your firm, how you got into this kind of work. Um, uh, principal at MKM Architecture and Design. We're a full service architecture firm uh, that really takes an exclusive look at how design can impact community health and well-being. Um, so that's kind of a broad umbrella uh, with projects ranging from credit access hospitals to public libraries. So as long as something in that discussion has something to do with how design could impact or enhance uh, community or neighborhood well-being, then it's something that we're interested in. And we try to build a team around the varying levels of expertise and interest needed to, to really do that in an effective way. So we've, we're uh, based out of downtown Fort Wayne. Um, firm's 37 years old, and uh, this has kind of just been my obsession for the last decade. All right. So those outside of kind of the architecture realm, I think one of the misconceptions or the, the understanding of like, you just like sit at a computer and design like big blueprints yeah. and like do physical things, yeah. right? But when you say like we are designing for quality of life and place and flow and like all of those types of things, that's a big difference than, yeah, I just designed buildings, right? Yeah. And, you know, people ask all the time, what, why do you want to be an architect? And the truth is, most people, yes, most architects, and they'll tell you they wanted to be an architect when they were five or six or seven. Okay. Um, where they had no clue what an architect did. And it just kind of sticks. Uh, at least that's been my experience. And uh, we just came to the realization that our firm um, wasn't designing places people readily go to. Um, we design places that house some of the most transformational and often stressful moments in people's lives, hospitals, you know, places that if given the choice, you'd never go to, mm. um, which is a responsibility we take really seriously. Um, and one that you can't ignore the experiences that the buildings you're designing house or facilitate. Um, so then the question is as a designer, how can you be better at making that experience as meaningful and supportive as possible for the functions it's trying to serve? So then it becomes a whole game of uh, sociology and psychology and how design can impact those experiences, which is above and beyond just treating a, a building like a sculpture or a piece of mm. art. Um, 
there is some of that, but I think the other part's extremely much more important. So this idea of like building a hospital that could be pretty and beautiful and up to the latest standards and efficiency and, yeah. and standards, yet there's one way to design that for efficiency and bottom line and like the function and practicality of that, yet it's completely different process when you're taking the people in mind and the experience that they're having and even thinking in terms of why are they there and what they're experiencing right. outside of just navigating which hall and it's, just, it's this big balance you know part of our responsibility part of the liability of our profession is i have to understand all the jurisdictional requirements um, needed to operate and design and facilitate and manage a healthcare institution like a hospital there's a lot of complex things on that side of the table. Um, on the other side of the table, you're drawing a floor plan and here's a waiting room with a consult room next to it. You could just draw it as a little square room and say, you know, that's a consult room. Or you can have a discussion that that's the room a woman finds out she's a widow as of this morning, oh. right? And that, yeah. That's a different discussion entirely. Yeah. Um, and it, it's changed the culture of our office in that, yes, there's this baseline level of information we have to understand. Uh, but you get that out of the way so you can focus on you know why we're really here and it's to it's to help support you know a day like that for somebody hmm. um, but somebody could maybe argue that that's a, that's a staffing or a people conversation not mu so much a design conversation or like physical space conversation correct right? and the difference between an architect and any other artistic endeavor i guess is that we're the only art form that's imposed on people right i mean if if you're a painter yeah. Um, you do paintings, but if you're a fan of painting, you go out and search those things out. Um, you're interacting with architecture, whether you like it or not, for your entire life. Um, so we do have this opportunity um, or responsibility to be more inclusive, um, artistically speaking, um, which comes with it, I think, a, a broader responsibility to understand how people use uh, the products in which we design for people. Yeah. Zach, did you... When did you really start thinking of those terms? Have you always, always really thought of those, or is it after you became an architect, architect, and other people influencing that you really started to think more in depth like that? Like, what were some of your influences that really led you personally towards being aware of some of these things, and really not just being aware but caring about them? Um, I probably always have been somewhat interested in it, whether I knew it or not. I mean, I grew up in a town with one stoplight that shut off at 10 o'clock at night. I mean, that, okay. that has been my yeah. upbringing where, you know, no matter where you walked, there was eyes on you and they knew who you were and who your mom was and uh, there was nowhere to hide. Um, and that kind of small town community is my intellectual baggage coming into college. Um, while I was uh, studying in architecture school, I participated in a group that focused on uh, traveling around to different rural communities throughout the Midwest and help envisioning what their future might be, um, which you got to start meet really interesting uh, real people. I mean, people that were struggling and had never talked to an architect, didn't know what architecture was, um, but had real dreams and aspirations of what their neighborhood or community could be. And I was always really infatuated with that kind of grassroots mentality of community development. Hmm. Um, and then I took a job at MKM um, who had had an entire portfolio of healthcare work. Um, and as healthcare has evolved over the last decade and the Affordable Care Act came on board, we really started to see this kind of emergence between not only providing healthcare, but also understanding 
community well-being and community health and how those two things can interface and our opinion is they interface it the way we design and build our neighborhoods hmm. um, so it was kind of a happy accident i don't think it was anything i take credit for they just kind of started to merge and become one yeah some of the things that uh, I've really enjoyed are some of these bigger picture. Uh, you lead research at your firm, like the depth of where mm -hmm. some of this comes from and looking at different structures of how people are connected, how they've been connected over years, both globally and you know domestically in the United States. Talk to, and some of these things that have come up in previous conversations, I'd love to kind of dive into it, this idea of like, you know, the invent, you know, when we started building homes with attached garages or suburban right. neighborhoods and how, how has changed in a place even like Fort Wayne, where it has a central core that was developed in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s and, and beyond and where development is today. So throw out a few of these. Talk to me about um, the, the, the role of the attached garage. Okay. And the impact sure. of the attached garage. Um, I think Amer the American dream, I think, has always been really infatuated with this idea of independence, right? I mean, at the, at the core, that's what it was about, was how could you grow um, an independent lifestyle? And the more independent you were, the better off everyone assumed that you and your family were. Um, that's evolved um, into this kind of glorification of privacy, right? Um, it's a superlative condition to say I have a private office, uh, private gym, private library, private home theater, my kids go to private school, these kind of closed systems. Um, and an extension of that was the garage where we started to continue to claim more and more space, right? It wasn't enough um, to claim private space as the bounds of the home. Then I grabbed the front porch and then I grabbed the front yard and then I put a fence on it and then I put a garage in front of it yeah. and really turned it into a fortress of private space. Um, and the first sub suburb, the front yard was considered public park space. Okay. So it was no weird thing to have a couple that you didn't know having a picnic in your front yard. And that's kind of evolved in this thing where that's my, I've claimed that as my territory and your trespassing. Um, the, the result of that was in these neighborhoods and the suburban sprawl mentality that uh, glorified uh, kind of an addiction to the car transform neighborhoods that were lined with front porches to being lined with opaque garage doors. And the biggest difference that made, I think, socially um, and from a well-being standpoint is it completely eliminated the, the, the ability to have an accidental interaction, right? You, uh, we've talked before, it's, it's like the opening scene to Mr. Rogers yeah. is very different than the, the way Batman gets in the Batcave. Yeah. Right. So Mr. Rogers, it's a whole song and dance and we're changing sweaters and shoes, but he's running into people and waving and talking. Um, same process when, when Batman flies into the Batcave going 75 miles per hour, the door shuts behind him. He never interacts with another human being. He changes, gets ready for whatever. Um, just a very different mentality. One is completely isolated and disengaged from the context of a neighborhood, friends, uh, neighbors, you name it. Um, and the other one's completely predicated around this idea of interaction. Um, and the, the difference with that is you can't really get uh, uh, the ability for a neighborhood to build social capital without repetition. Yeah. Right? You, you don't trust anyone without a repetitive series of occurrences. Hmm. And it's much, much harder to have any sense of repetition um, in a built environment that's completely closed, that's completely fenced and territories are claimed 
and trespassers are identified. Like that whole mentality has really just transformed what a neighborhood has meant to, um, to everyone, you know, from, you know, from young to old. Yeah, this idea of social interaction being such a core necessity for trust and connectivity, not to negate, like, yeah, there are certain times that independence is, is completely normal and should be until it's not, until the well-being conversation comes, right. comes into play. Talk to us about, like, what are measures of well-being? Like, if well-being is a priority in life and, and towards the way we design and build, like, what, what is the measures of well-being? Like Gallup, Gallup has like a well-being index. So they'll measure it across five indicators, and they'll even give states and large city metro areas a, a well-being index score, which Indiana does very poorly on. Um, so there's there are becoming more and more objective definitions and scoring metrics for well-being. Um, the other way to look at it is um, this idea that individual health, in some ways, is a contradiction in terms uh, because health, I think relies on its context. So um, there's, there's a thing called social determinants of health. Okay. Um, less than 30% have anything to do with your access to good clinical care or your genetics. North of 75% of the social determinants of health has something to do with the social economic factors that define your everyday routine. Okay. Right? Your neighborhood. Yeah. Really. Wow. Um, so I can get probably closer to, the, to uh, your expected life uh, span, how old you're going to be when you die, based on your zip code than your diet. Wow. And I, eerily close. Um, and that shouldn't be the case, but it, I think it's indicative of how impactful uh, context is to lifestyle, health, um, and happiness. So where you live changes how you live, how you live changes why you live. And that, that's kind of a cyclical thing. And it, neighborhood development has to start taking that more seriously in the fact that they are the platform um, for that health. And we're getting better, I think, at measuring hmm. you know, what that is and how to improve it. it it's a, it's a slow, slow process. Yeah, it's been fascinating over, over the 10, 12 years I've been involved in NeighborLink is, you know, what, what started for me was, was a connectivity to just helping. Like, I started showing up and volunteering and mowing people's grass and for people that couldn't do that. Like, I understood a disability or due to aging because I've got a grandparent that can't mow their grass anymore. So it's easy for somebody that's able-bodied to be able to step in and do something transactionally. But the more that I did transactions, the more that I got connected relationally with people that yeah. that were, weren't really my neighbors and it became very practically difficult for the charitable structure that I was right. volunteering through to actually be able to help long term. So I would have to drive 30 minutes across town to connect to somebody uh, to mow their grass, something that I could do very easily and I'd have to throw my mower in the, in the car. And right. That whole process began to really challenging and opening up my worldview of saying, wow, this is really hard, it's unsustainable, it's very challenging. I get really, really disappointed when I see everybody else's yards mowed around this one person. Yet, what didn't take me much effort is clearly not in somebody else's priority. And then I, so I then began to wrestle with this idea of like, okay, maybe proximity matters. Like if I have a heart and propensity for this, yeah. then maybe I should live somewhere uh, or choose a neighborhood that's a little bit closer to where I'm doing this type of work in a very functional kind of way. But what really connected with me is the fact of disconnection between these neighbors that I would show up and I'd mow grass four or five times in a row and then the neighbor would come out or I would call to follow up and say, hey, do you need your yard mowed again? And a neighbor would have done it. 
Right. And so it's these small disruptions and really the disconnectivity of neighborhoods that really fascinates me um, around this quality of life because this person's able to live independently. What I find fascinating, so I mean, instinctively, I compare it to like, so there's, there's a group of fish, a school of fish is no different than a neighborhood of humans, hmm. right? The, the difference is we instinctively uh, want to define the world as us and them. Certain neighborhoods are more conducive to, to having a broader definition of us. Yeah. Uh, some are have a, it's much harder and it becomes a smaller and smaller circle where it's either your nuclear family or you as an individual. It's hmm. me against the world. Um, and those, those uh, neighborhoods that allow people to understand the, the context of us in a more externalized way, historic neighborhoods do this exceptionally well, front porch neighborhoods do this well, um, neighborhoods that have third places in them, so places mm. beyond first places home, second places work, and third places um, like the cheer song where everybody knows your name, yeah. churches, pubs, you name it, allows you to further broaden that definition of what's the physical geographic boundaries around us. Yeah. You take care of us. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do you broaden where those lines are to, to define and highlight the area of us or we, you know, ours? Because um, we use this language on, in good neighborhoods, you'll notice that they'll use that language for parks, library. That's our park. That's our school. Um, and the neighborhoods that don't have that within that noticeable boundary um, start to shrink, shrink and devolve into it's me against the world, not us and them. And I think that's an interesting and really fascinating dynamic that neighborhood planning, community development don't give enough credit to kind of like the biological instincts of humans just as mammals to understand that yeah. that's, that's the game, is trying to understand how you can better define and develop that. And what NeighborLink's done, I think, is forced those discussions. You go to help somebody in that neighborhood, I have to acknowledge that that person's in my neighborhood, that happened on my watch. Yeah. Um, and now this is us. Yeah. You came into our space, um, but yesterday my space was my space, and my neighbor's space was their space. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to redefine the limits or boundaries of that um, really is, at the end of the day, I think the game. So interesting. The more that I do this work, and the more that I ask these bigger questions and think about this, is, you know, in our community and communities all over the country, there are big economic and community development initiatives with a lot of resource and a lot of interest and a lot of like big ideas and visions for looking at a place that maybe maybe physically broken or at least look like yeah. there's a lot of rundown and it's very like outside in focus. Like we have the solution to this area and everyone else will be impacted and it'll be great. But I'm also seeing that like in some smaller lower income neighborhoods, what's really happening is that all the ideas are already there. Mm -hmm. There's ownership and stakeholders that there has just been a lack of hope and a lack of follow through and a lack, really a lack of social connectivity. Yeah. And when somebody goes in and just disrupts the, the social connectivity, maybe making a few connections, maybe doing that thing that nobody takes ownership of that happens in every neighborhood, uh, then, then it starts to rebuild itself. It starts reconnecting, and then those folks have their ideas and they move forward. There's just this big, big divide between, yeah, I can come in with a five million dollar, four hundred million dollar initiative and try to fix everything. Well, I can, but what would it look like if you can just go in and just mix some things up a little bit? Or acknowledge that it might not be broke. Ah, yeah. Right. I, I yeah. think it's a it's a delicate balance, you know, to say yeah. we want we mean well. Yeah. Most people do. It's yeah. a sincere effort. 
Um, but if you really sit down and talk to those people that you just 10 seconds ago claimed were needing fixed, none of them acknowledge that they're even broken. Yeah. Right? They might need a nudge here or there or a favor. Um, they don't want it for free. They'll give you a favor back. It has nothing to do with a handout or welfare or any of those things. Um, the question is, how can you empower them to take ownership of that? Maybe not even financially, but psychologically. You know, this is your neighborhood. Run it. And what do you, you tell me what you need. Um, and it's all based on the, the, phasing, the phrasing of the question, mm. right? If you ask what needs fixed around here, you immediately get negative comments. If you say, where could this place be in five years? Same question, I mean, you really want the same answer, yeah. but the response to that is aspirational and optimistic and you know, only if we could get these resources, we would do these things, yeah. which if you say what needs fixed, it's like, well, yeah, you know, that's broken, this is broken, mm -hmm. that's always dirty. Um, but every neighborhood's got that. It's a misconception that great neighborhoods are perfect neighborhoods. It's, oh, yeah. it's the complete opposite. Sure. All great neighborhoods are slightly imperfect. That's what yeah. makes them great. Um, and the, the instinct, I think, for people that want to help is to create some utopial condition where they're going to pretend like everything's now going to be perfect with this $5 million thing. And it's not the case because it probably wasn't theirs in the first place and won't be theirs when you leave. Um, it'll just be a reminder that someone came in and called us broken. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's a real delicate balance um, that I've seen cause a lot of drama in neighborhoods. Yeah. And it goes back to the us versus them. Sure. Right? I'm, it g goes back to the, to the disconnection. Yeah. Like, we're not in relationship. Right. Uh, therefore, if we're not in relationship and working on the problem together, or at least asking the question together, then how do we know either one of them is right? Interesting. The term quality of life gets, gets used quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of definitions for what quality of life. Give us, like, what, what does that mean to you in, in a neighborhood context? So, quality of life is usually kind of just a generalized term that I think most times is being used to mean uh, some measurement of health, happiness, well-being. So you as an individual have a certain level of quality of life. Um, but then it gets more confusing because then there's also quality of place, place making, mm. um, all these kind of different phrases that roughly mean the same thing. Um, livable communities, all these things. Um, and I come at it from my own bias. Um, to me, they're all one and the same. So it's an acknowledgement that the built environment has some impact on your perception of quality of life. Um, and what's interesting is there's a big difference between tangible indicators that you are living more well, healthier, versus your perception of a higher quality of life. And there's a lot of research saying that the perception might be as important or more than the actual tangible fact of whether or not you're healthier. Huh. Um, so they did a really interesting survey a couple years ago and they were they were researching um, uh, individuals in Indiana, 65 and older, um, who tend to have a higher level of isolation, depression, disengagement. Um, and they took people that self-identified to have a high level of engagement and people that admitted they had a low level of engagement. They didn't measure how many times they left the house or anything like that. Just do you self-identify, do you consider yourself highly engaged or admittedly have very low level engagement? When you separate the, out those two uh, groups and ask, like big philosophical questions like, are you happy with your life the majority of the time? It's like a 40% difference in those willing to say yes from the people that felt like they were engaged. Mm -hmm. um, 
whether or not they were was beside the point. Um, and this goes back to you know being able to have repetitive, trustworthy relationships with those around you. Um, I, I don't think it. The best way to describe it is like the first six minutes of the movie Up. Okay. Right, like that. Yeah. That shows everything you really need to know about everything we're talking about. Wow. Because um, the definition of home is really the overlap of three things. There's the physical structure of your house. There's kind of the the pop culture. Um, society, you know, the context, the neighborhood, and then there's users of the house. And over the course of your lifetime, all three of those change, but where they overlap is what you think of when you say home. Um, so in that first six minutes, you know, the couple gets married, they start renovating the house, changing the house, and neighborhoods changing all around them, and then she dies, and the user group changes, and all these things really evolve. Well, wherever they overlap, that's, that's what he's trying to hold on to, that's what he's not willing to let go of. Um, and people think of neighborhoods the same way, those overlapping things. That's what I don't want to give up. That's what I don't want a stranger to come in and tell me it needs fixed. Yeah. Right? It, it's mine. And I associate my independence and my identity with the memory of these places. Um, yeah, they could get improved, but they're not broken. Yeah. Until you've asked me. Right. Until you've asked right. me no, exactly. where my vision is or what I think is broken. Right. Uh, how dare you tell me what's, right. what's, fixed, what's broken, whether it's, it is or not. It's my, it's my thing to decide, Yeah, right? not yours. Interesting. Uh, it's so fascinating to think about these structures and the reality of like seeing life lived out in all different contexts around Fort Wayne about the social connectivity and this desire to be, be connected more than disconnected. And often, at least in my experience, it's been less like it may have started with my desire to want to like impact something or to change. Mm -hmm. But over time, by being present in reality and becoming a neighbor, this is far more about the way that I want to live because it's had transformative impact. Yeah. And the quality of life is is related to how connected I am to my neighbors and whether my wife and I are regular, regularly asking the question when we think of new things to do or we're being asked to be invited into something, does it take me out of my neighborhood or does it keep us here? Because right. there's relationships we've made here. And if I say yes to this new thing, I'm gonna be disconnected to the very yeah. people that honestly can respond when our kids are hurt and somebody's gotta to go to the, to the emergency room and one of the spouses is gone. Like the, the very idea right. of being able to call my neighbor across the street and just drop my kids off is, is important and valuable to the quality of life. Zach, so I feel like we could just like, talk for like three hours on this podcast about this stuff. Uh, I'm curious um, to try to wrap this up from your experience, both as a professional, as an individual that is, is also moving towards this. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? It's, an, it's a fascinating question. I, I think to be a good neighbor, you need to have certain skill sets. You need to be empathetic, trustworthy, available, um, joyful, prideful in the place that you call home. Um, but I think most importantly, you need to be an active participant um, in a support network, right? We call it neighborhoods, but that's what they are. Uh, when they're really functioning the way they're supposed to function, you are an active player in a closed system of people that are using each other to support uh, a collective quality of life. And if you can start making decisions based on that, like you were just saying, and it's hard not to classify you as, as a good neighbor. And if a larger group of people start thinking that way, that those are the neighborhoods you, you can't deny or are the best. 
And even to that point, if, if all of these things are introspective and, and personal choices about the way that we live our lives and, and are almost part of our character, then it begins to, at least in my mind, begins to take the, the boundaries off of what we define as a neighborhood. It doesn't, it yeah. isn't the place, it yeah, isn't yeah. just the place that we live. Yeah. It could be the place that we work yep. or even the places we frequent Yeah, from there. Zach, thanks. Hey, thank you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for doing this work and telling your story. I know you speak a lot and uh, travel and, and write and get us to, to challenge these, uh, our thoughts on, on this stuff, that connectivity has a very practical sense, not just, you know, touchy feeling that this impacts our lives and our communities. And that's why we should care if we don't care for our own personal selves. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Neighboring. Uh, take a look, um, pick up some books, do some research on the impacts of neighborhoods and development and architecture in that space. I bet you will be surprised about what you find and the things that cause you to ask questions just like they did to me. Thanks for tuning in. Neighboring is presented by NeighborLink, a volunteer organization that connects vulnerable neighbors with neighbors looking to help. Neighboring is produced by Punch Films, a national full-service video production company based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Creative direction by Lindy Bazil and Lindsay Ray Porter. Music is by Metavari off their recent album, Symmetry. Be sure to visit neighboringpodcast.com to watch or listen to other episodes.